You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our scripture today comes from Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13 and going through the end of chapter 53. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were appalled at you. His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what has not been told them, and they will understand what they have not heard. Who has believed and what we have heard? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of splendor that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like one people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all were led astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and he was struck because of the people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man at his death. Although he had done no violence, and had done had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him, and he made him sick. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will succeed by his hand. He will see it and out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many of his portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil. Because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. This is God's word. Good morning. Good morning, King's Cross Church. If I guess the, the kids are already mostly gone, but that was uh, very special this morning and all the time I know they put into that. So if you see one of them walking around, make sure you give them a high five and a congratulations on a job well done. Um, what an important opportunity it is for us to invite kids who are an integral part of the community of faith into the participation of worshiping our king. Um, that they have the privilege to read what has been handed down to us in scripture and to sing the worship of the king. Uh, to glory in who he is. And we're going to continue to do that this morning in Isaiah uh, I'm Chad, one of the pastors here, and we are in a season of Advent, a season of both uh, celebrating what Christ has done in coming as a little baby so 2,000 years ago, but also looking forward to who he is and what will be accomplished fully in his name, what he has accomplished for us in coming. 
And last week, if you were with us, we walked through a passage of Ezekiel and talked about the identity of, or the promise of that king, the king that is promised to come. And this week, as we look at Isaiah, we want to take the opportunity to, to see who is this king that would come. What, what are the markers, the indicators, the, the characteristics that God wanted us to see and recognize and be able to identify who this king was and what was unique about him? And believe me, based on the values of this world, the kind of king he was was incredibly unique. And he tells and instructs us even in the way that he lived and the way that, that, that he died for us. So if you would pray with me this morning, uh, we, want, we need the Spirit to be with us and guide us as we're spending time in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you do speak. Father, thank you for Jesus that we can re- reflect on and, and consider and meditate on who he is and God what he has done for us Lord I pray as we go through this time it would not be an intellectual excursion into the truths of scripture but rather a transformative time with your spirit working in our hearts and in our minds God that we know that your spirit dwells in your people and Lord even as we talk about Jesus this morning for those who don't know him well they might see him even more clearly, God, learn about him and love to follow him. God, grant us that this morning, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, is where we are. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open them. It would be Very helpful to have the text of Scripture right in front of you that you can see and follow through exactly where we are. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, talks, uh, says this. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And I've heard it cited, even this reference by others who would deny Christ, some who are atheistic, who would uh, deny the existence of a God, period, and, and, and try to uh, fashion faith as that which was, is belief in something that there's no proof for. Maybe you've heard that phraseology. I'm not coming here this morning necessarily to, to, to give you a robust argument of the proofs of Scripture. I believe they stand on their own and would love to have that conversation with you. Uh, But the truth is, that's not what that passage says, nor is it what we hold to, faith in something not seen. Rather, we hold to a tradition of faith that has seen God in the flesh come and has seen him live contrary to everything this world would tell you is right and good and what is power and love of money and pursuit of sex and relationships of any kind that might satisfy you. All of those things when we look at the life of Christ, was absolutely contrary to what the world would say is success. And Isaiah speaks directly to that. In fact, if you're not familiar with the the book of Isaiah, he's a prophet who lived in the southern kingdom. And he wrote uh, to the the southern kingdom, he prophesied, really honestly, I heard this phrase about prophets, they were almost a watchdog for the covenant, if you will. They were those who would call the people back to what was what was made in a promise to God at Mount Sinai and to continually call them to faithfulness and to point to what God is going to accomplish in this world. And 
And Isaiah is no different from that, and he's one of the more well-known prophets. And at the beginning of his, of his letter, he's, he's, he's writing about judgment and telling Israel, who is, who is going after idols, who are following after this world, who is compromising um, their, their obedience to God in order to make treaties with, with the countries around them. Because honestly, compromising, it looked right and good, right in front of their face. All right, they're scared, they're fearful, we're going to make a treaty here. And God said, no, 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 you're supposed to trust me. And so Isaiah's constantly rebuking them throughout this. But he doesn't only rebuke them, because he also makes a turn to talk about someone he's identifying as a servant. And, and, and in the very beginning, he's, he's recognizing that Isaiah uh, is recognizing that the Jews are supposed to be the servant of God in this world. Those who are a servant to the nations around them on behalf of God himself. A, a, a nation of priests, if you will, interceding for them. But rather than being a testimony of who God is to the nations, they were, they were joining in with the idolatry. They were participating. They were being consumed by what was right in front of their face. Now, there's a couple ways you can look at Scripture and, um, when we read through these, and people often maybe make a dichotomy between the two. You can be extremely very literal about every letter of the Bible, and people will criticize that and say, now that's not the right way to take it. But the other way is that you can look at this and say that in uh, uh, over-spiritualize. Maybe look at everything as a allegorical or mystical in some way or fashion. And, and what I'm going to come before you today and tell you is that I don't think we are necessarily at a threat of either one of those, but most often we see is that we are not spiritual enough about what's happening in our world around us. And we are far too consumed with the world like the Israelites. That, that the risk of that is to, to say we follow God and who he is and know who he is. But I, I remember a title of a book I saw really essentially, we're, we're, we're functional atheists, we're Christian atheists. We live as if he really doesn't live, work, and move in the world. And Isaiah was calling the people of Israel back to that God and saying he is at work and he will be at work. But in some ways, just kind of like they say, faith is a belief in what you have no proof for. You don't see him right in front of your face all the time. You often are blinded by instead what the world puts right in front of your face. And the risk for us is that we get so concerned like Israel about the world's in front of us, we, we don't recognize and see who Christ is himself and trust and follow him. And we compromise. And we, and we find ways to, to negotiate with powers of this world like the Israelites did. But in Isaiah, he paints a picture of this servant that where Israel failed in that capacity, he succeeded. He was a servant who came and lived the life that God intended for man to be and, who, and to do. To live that life in a way that secures salvation. He's a Messiah. He's one that serves everyone and saves them all from the evil that they're pursuing. In fact, he takes this king that we're going to talk about. Oh, by the way, I don't want to like bury the lead. We're talking about Jesus. He takes this king and he says he's a servant to everybody, but then when he gets to Isaiah 52 and 53, he kind of puts a twist on this because if it's a king, it's a Messiah, the world's looking for power, for success, for prestige, and then he says that's not what it's going to look like for this king. The servant looks completely different. In reality, the king of heaven sets aside his glory to serve and give his life to save rebels. 
And this is not a familiar storyline. I actually asked Aaron in this. Says, Do we have an illustration of a, so- of a movie like this where, you know, people rebelled against the king and he's like, you know what, I'll die for you. Now, usually they're like, crush the rebellion, bring back everybody into the fold. That's not how he does it. In Isaiah 52 and 13 through 15, I want to read and look at, it's something of a, of a turn in the story where Isaiah begins to introduce this servant, broadly speaking. Because we know from Ezekiel and other passages that the king is coming, but what's he going to look like? So Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 describes him, and he says this, See, my servant will be successful. Okay, success, great. Who in here is like, you know, been gone to college or getting further degrees, and you're thinking, what I, I just don't want to be successful. I'm doing this to pursue success. And probably in the back of your head, you're thinking, I'm doing this thing or furthering my career because we're looking at success, and I, I don't, I'm not dogging that. Please be successful in terms of like careers and jobs and pursuit. But when we read something like that, there's something in the back of our head what success might look like. And Isaiah says this, he's going to be successful, he's going to be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. This all sounds like success. Lifted up on high. Just as many, this is where it takes a turn, but, but Israel, just as many were appalled at you. Okay, that doesn't sound successful. I'm never thinking I walk in a room, I'm feeling good about myself, and everyone's appalled at me. But just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. And his form did not resemble a human being. He was a man, but he was beaten and bruised. There's something about him that he was so disfigured. So in that way, in 15, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what, he is, what had not been told to them, and they will understand what they had not heard this king is going to come and he's had success and he's going to shut the mouths of other kings and other rulers of this world. We can think of kings who are physically in front of us, but also Paul describes rulers and principalities in the spiritual realms. That, that there is a way in which this king is coming and he's going against the grain and he's going to uh, shut the mouths of anybody who thinks they have this power in this world. And he's going to do it by being appalled by the world. In verse 53, verse 1, Isaiah takes that exact idea and he says this, Who has believed what we have heard? He knows it's unbelievable. Who's, who's believing this? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who are these people that have been shown this? Who believes this? Who will believe my word? Isaiah elsewhere says something similar, that you have closed up their mouth, their eyes, they won't see, they won't hear, they won't turn. He knows that the way in which this king will come will shock everybody. John 12, 37 through 41 quotes this passage. And it's, it's, John is talking about Jesus when he says this, even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. This was to fill the word of Isaiah the prophet who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So John was looking at this passage to identify the king. And so should we. So what are the characteristics that Isaiah then turns from in this introduction to describe what this king's going to be look like? Well, let's look together at what are five characteristics. And the first one is this. He's going to be an unexpected sovereign. Okay, he's a king, but not the way you're looking for him. What's it say in verse, verse 2? He's unimpressive. He grew up before him like a young plant, 
and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. This guy has nothing. Nobody's thinking he's next American Idol. He doesn't have any kind of, he doesn't have the gravitas. He says a root out of dry ground. I don't know if there are any, anyone in here who, who plants, who, who has a green thumb. You want water? This guy's growing weak and feeble out of dry ground. To even accentuate. We had some sod laid in our, our backyard. The biggest enemy was dry ground. We had to keep that sucker wet, and I'm still crossing my fingers. Because plants need water to grow healthy and strong. In this particular example, he grew up out of dry ground. He's not impressive form. He grows up in obscurity. This second candle of, um, of Advent is, is the faith candle, as we talk about today, having faith. But also it's the Bethlehem candle. Because it talks about Mary and Joseph when we reflect on the fact when Christ was born, his parents traveled to a little town called Bethlehem, city of David. And he was born in a really obscure place to two poor newlyweds. His dad's a carpenter. Mary is expected uh, of a scandalous pregnancy. People in his community, I mean, even later in his ministry, talked about him uh, being a bastard child because his mom got pregnant out of the blue. How many in here, you're going to hear another lady come to you and said, no, it's the Holy Spirit, and you go, okay. That's what the community was like for his mom and, and dad. And so he grew up with those parents, born in a little town of Bethlehem, shabby little town. His parents got there and didn't have the influence or power or ability or planning skills, I don't know, to get a room. So they had to go into a, into a, um, a stable with animals. He shows up in this stable. He's born as a tiny, frail human being. Babies are born completely un- unable to, to, to um, fend for themselves. Are we all aware of this? The king of glory. And this, if, if, if mom and dad just set him out on the road to expose, baby's gone. With no ability to serve himself. And he's in a stable laid in a food trough for his bassinet. This is not mom's first choice. I'm not thinking, can you clean out the dog dish? I'd like to lay the baby down. And then he grew up in a a town of Nazareth that was so obscure, the wrong side of the railroad tracks, if you will. Because later in his ministry, people said he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is the king of glory who comes and he's unimpressive. Second, in verse 3, he's not accepted. He's unaccepted. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Even as he grew up in ministry and he tried to speak to the people in his hometown, he was rejected. The spiritual leaders of that time gave him the worst time. Crowds would come to hear him speak, but he would... He, he was not your mega church pastor who was like filling auditoriums. I mean, they came in droves, but then he also cleared the seats. Because when he brought some messages, he even had to turn to his 12 disciples like, are you going to leave too? Because they couldn't take his message. He was rejected. He wasn't accepted. Hebrews tells us about Jesus that we don't have a great high priest that can't sympathize us because he went through all of these things. 
Verse 3, the end of verse 3 and then verse 4, he was also unappreciated for what he's done. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. Jesus came into this world, and if you look forward from his birth to the cross, when he came to Easter, and what we celebrate on Christmas is really setting the stage for what we we also recognize and celebrate on Easter. What is his, the death of Christ and his burial and resurrection on our behalf? And when Isaiah describes this, he says, he bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. It speaks of, of those sins in our life as illness, as disease. And he, he took that on himself. And if you look at the story in what's called Passion Week leading up to Easter, Jesus walks into Jerusalem Welcome. He, the beginning of the week is under thunderous applause. They're cheering him on. This is, as they believed, this king who's conquering, and they're expecting to help free them from Rome and otherwise. They're, they're thinking physically. They're thinking presently and right in front of their faith. They're not thinking about the sin that they bear and what he really has to accomplish that is far greater than that. And they were applauding their conquering king to save them from Rome. But by Friday of that week, this is how fickle people are. By Friday of that week, the same crowd was cheering for his death. He was there to conquer our sickness, our death, our pain, and, he, and we nailed him to a tree. He was cursed, afflicted by God to be cast out. And so he's an unexpected sovereign. None of these characteristics are something I'm looking for for a mighty, majestic king. He's unimpressive. He's unaccepted. He's unappreciated. The second characteristic about him is he's a blameless substitute. Not only is he unexpected as a sovereign, but he's blameless as a substitute. Carrying no guilt of his own, Jesus willingly takes on our guilt for us. Look at Isaiah 53, 4-9. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. We just read that. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Look at the the contradiction Isaiah is trying to say. On behalf of you, Christ, this Messiah, this King, is pierced because of your rebellion. He is crushed because of your iniquity and sin. He is punished so that you might have sin, have peace. And and, and his wounds that he takes is what brings our healing. And then reading, continuing on through verse 6, Isaiah stresses the the comparison, the substitution, because he describes us in this way. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for, our, for the iniquity of us all. Notice that as sheep. Are you guys in familiarity with sheep? Yeah? They're cute. They're fluffy. They make, like, good decorations, I guess. I don't know. Cotton. I love cotton. Okay. That's not, that's not sheep. What am I doing? Wool. <laughs> Edit that out of the tape. Okay. Cotton. Okay. Um, wool grows on sheep. So, wool is also nice. Um, Okay, so in this particular case, sheep are also not bright animals. I'm going to put that very kindly. 
I had a, 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 a farmer, someone who raised sheep. He talked about this with me one time after a, a message, and he said, have you ever seen sheep? I'm like, well, yeah, I have. He's like, no, really. Have you ever, like, had to, like, try to protect sheep from themselves? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? He said, we had one time, he just gave me an example. We couldn't find the sheep anywhere. Creates this entire new idea of the fact of Jesus leaving the 99 to get the one. And they're like, we don't know where the sheep is. No idea. Uh, he looked and looked, and I think probably fa- heard this thing bleeding. Bleating, not bleeding. You know, the noise it makes. And, and, and what happened was they walked around, they turned, and they came back to the back of this building. It was up on, on kind of raised up on the side of a hill so that the back of the ground was lower than the front, assuming. And, and, and this sheep just had just made his way up between the, the floor joists. And he got his head all the way to the front, couldn't go any further, and he didn't know where to go. Just staring at the wall. It's like, this isn't going well. I can't go back where I came from, I guess. That's what he's figuring. Can't back up. And so they had to crawl under this building, get it from behind, and drag it out. Okay? That's a sheep. That's a sheep. Matter of fact, sheep will stray off to places. Have you seen the imagery of a sheep over the shepherd's shoulders? You know why they do that often? It's because they have to break the sheep's legs to get them to come back to the fold. Cripple them. Tie them up. So, so this sheep, we're like these sheep that go astray. But verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet they did not open his mouth. He was quiet. What does Isaiah use an example we like sheep go astray, but like a lamb led to the slaughter. This servant goes to the slaughter for us as a lamb. Quiet. Like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He took the punishment for us and gave no pushback. We're off wandering, stuck under buildings. And he takes a sacrifice on our behalf. We're the sheep who are going astray. Christ is the lamb that goes to slaughter. Verse 8, he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man and his death. Because why? He had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. So not only is he a substitute sacrifice, a lamb who goes to the slaughter for wandering sheep, but it says he wasn't guilty of anything. His grave was, was with the wicked, but he was, he was killed on a cross with guilty people. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. He was buried with honor. Why? Because he hadn't done anything wrong. He wasn't violent. He wasn't deceitful. He was blameless. And even as a blameless, blameless servant, he goes before He goes to slaughter on our behalf. So first, he's an unexpected sovereign. Second, he's a a blameless sacrifice or a substitute. And thirdly, he's a joyful sacrifice. Now, these are such contradictions of what we would think about this. Anybody here think it's a joy to sacrifice? You know, I mean, sometimes you look at your budget and you're like, I got to cut some things back, but you're not excited about it, are you? Things, prices are rising. That's just a little thing. But if you had to sacrifice life, are we joyful about that? <laughs> I mean, even, even if we could think of the broadest group of people who would be, uh, often we just looked at Veterans Day, right? We had Veterans Day. 
and, and veterans go off and, and take their time in their life and set it aside for the potential to give their life on behalf of the country. That's, that's honorable. We often say, thank you for your sacrifice. And maybe that's a bad example because I know some veterans and they seem to do have a good time. Uh, but, but, but they're not going into this thinking, I'm joyful about the idea I might die. But they're willing to do it. In this particular case, it's pleasing to him to do this, to sacrifice his life. Verse, verses 10 and, and 11. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. I, I want to pause here for a second. Because that can be a difficult phrase. Can it not? I want to acknowledge that. This is a, another sticking point for criticism. I've, I've, heard it, I've heard it phrased as divine child abuse, if you will. That the God, of, the God who's the father is pleased to crush his son. What kind of dad is that? So even the language is difficult for us to, uh, to see and recognize. But here's what I would tell you. It's because we are in the flesh. And we're not thinking about what God is accomplishing and what he's doing here. When I said earlier that we don't spiritualize enough, it's because we're consumed in looking of, if, if you're setting aside and it pleases me to crush my son, I'm a terrible person. But what God is doing and accomplishing in his son is so much grander than that. It's the salvation of all people. And because in his sacrifice, giving of his life, the complete opposite happens. We're thinking, we're thinking in a short-term mindset. We're thinking, oh, we laid on our life, I'm dead, it's over. But in fact, the next part of the verse says, when you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will see offspring from this. He will see fruit. He's going to bear fruit from this. He's going to be crushed, but look, he will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. The Lord was pleased to crush him severely because of what was accomplished in Christ. His sacrifice secured his people. He's a pleasing offering because he's bearing fruit for the Lord. He's a pleasing offering because, because he actually experiences eternal life. He knows God more deeply, and he knows, he knows him well. That's what John 17 tells us, that eternal life is to know God. And finally, he's, he's a, a pleasing sacrifice because he's being obedient to God. He is seeking the Lord's pleasure. And verse 11 tells us that after his anguish, he will see light. And what is Jesus? After, he's, after his anguish, after his suffering, he's satisfied. He's satisfied because he knows what's been accomplished in his sacrifice. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says this about Jesus himself. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Paul is encouraging here, and I say Paul, the, the author of Hebrews isn't, super clear to be necessarily Paul, but the author of Hebrews uh, is saying here in this phrase that we want to, as we run the race in obedience to God, we want to lay aside our hindrances and we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. And who is Jesus in this phrase? Who is he telling us? He's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And what is it he did? For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He conquered death he was satisfied because of the joy he died. He laid down his life for the sheep. 
And as a lamb before the slaughter, it, he, he had joy in that sacrifice. And Scripture would tell us, brothers and sisters, if we look at our Savior and that's the way that he lived his life, with joy for sacrifice, that's the same life we should lead ourselves. It's explicitly what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, what are the mercies of God? Those extended in Christ. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. And by the way, what's the opposite of that? Verse 2, to be conformed to this age. So that we are consumed by the flesh like Israel, and we see the world around us, and we compromise, and we find ways to work in this world and say we're still following after God, but in reality, he's saying, no, 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 no. Following after me will be a contradiction to this world, but you can still trust me. They're going to think you're crazy, but you can sacrifice it all for me. And you, like Christ, can sacrifice with joy because you see what he's accomplished in his sacrifice. And you can know that your sacrifice is not in vain, but rather will bear fruit for the kingdom because it's God who works in you. And you can please God by giving your life over to him in a way that is without abandon and all the trust in the world because if he's accomplished so much in his son and he's offered him freely to us, what more would he hold from us? And then it goes on in verse 11, continuing, that he is, he is a joyful sacrifice laying down his life and in so doing he remains righteous before God. He's a righteous servant. Because after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous service servant will justify many. He'll carry their iniquities. So even in his sacrifice, even in his death, even as he went before Roman officials, he never compromised on righteousness. Never compromised. And this phrase, by his knowledge, might seem a little strange, a little weird. What does that mean? What does it mean that by the fact, I mean... I don't have the knowledge of God. If, if Jesus has gotten the flesh, am I kind of, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not him. But what does it mean by, by his knowledge? And I think in this particular case, the New American Commentary, Gary Smith, is helpful here. He says, if this seeing the light refers to his perception of how his travail and suffering led to light and salvation for others, one could understand that he would be satisfied with his knowledge of this wonderful benefit for others. His travail and suffering were not wasted. He satisfactorily accomplished what he was sent to do for the sake of others. So, so what Gary's telling us is that by his knowledge, meaning that he could see what was accomplished in the work that God had sent him to do. And he justifies many. I don't want us to make a connection to me, think, okay, be like Jesus, lay down your life, you're going to save many people. That's not a helpful connection uh, here. Um, but I would say this, like he tells his servants, if your master is the servant of all, uh, how could you live like you're greater than him? How else, how, how could we also not lay down our life and sacrifice for others? Because he has chosen to save many, and he's chosen to do it through you and I. To serve others. 
And see, in this particular case, God remains righteous. Jesus remains the righteous servant. Because I think we have to think even beyond the context of what's right in front of our face and continue to consider that God is, the, is righteous in all of heaven and earth, not just here on this earth. In fact, Scripture is, it, it testifies of the fact that, there, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, constantly wanting to stand before the throne. Think of Job. If you see the story of Job, he comes before God and says, hey, have you considered Job? I mean, he'll probably give up on you if, he's, if he has a hard life. The enemy is accusers of the brethren. And God cannot stand before, he could, hey, could God say, you know what, I don't like you, you're evil, let me just crush you. Would he be righteous to do that and leave humanity in their sin? He, he doesn't want to do that. He, rather would, he would rather, in Christ, provide a way of salvation for mankind so that the accuser has nothing to stand on. Because when the accuser becomes a, before God and says, have you seen them? Look at their evil. Look at their sin. Look at the things they do. Look how they don't trust you, how they don't follow you. These people are not good. They deserve exactly what I have. Whatever you give me, they get. And they says, no. Jesus already took it for them. You've got nothing to stand on. And that's why Romans says there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. Because Satan is now a lawyer without a case. Romans 3, 23 through 26 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that might be a familiar passage for many of you. We're all sinned, we fall short of the glory of God. But it goes on in verse 24 to say they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did he accomplish this? God presented him as the mercy seat and by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, that his holiness, not before you, not just before your neighbor, not before the kings and queens of this world, but by the entire universe and all of creation, his righteousness is on display in Christ. And he demonstrates that because in his restraint, God passed over the sins committed. He was patient with us. And God presented him, being Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. I love that. God is perfect and holy and he did it in Christ. He still saves those who are rebels and sinners, and he does it in Christ. And because of that reality, he did not play darkness game. Satan's a liar. The enemies of God are deceivers. Those are the ones who lead men into darkness and, 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 um, and astray like sheep. But the lamb goes before the shearers. The lamb goes to the slaughter, and he overcomes, Paul, John tells us, darkness with light. And I think we can't ignore the fact that the temptation for us as believers, even in this world, is to compromise and say it's for Jesus. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, ever present in the United States of America and politics is the first thing that comes to mind. In our neighborhood community space, we might justify our actions and our behavior. We might justify the way we treat people. We may say, hey, I'm going to 
vote this way or do this thing or I'm going to live this life this way because this is for God. But in the meantime, we sacrifice what is righteous. And we act unholy and unloving and unkind to our neighbor. We can have different opinions and be holy and righteous and kind to our neighbor. And loving. And what Jesus demonstrates is he goes willingly to be sacrificed, abused, rejected, dismissed, afflicted, beaten on our behalf. And he's our king. And pardon me if I don't challenge the fact that we think we deserve better. And praise God, there are so many who go around the world into really, really tough areas and nations as missionaries who willingly lay down their life and are willing to go to threatening zones where they may actually lose their life on behalf of Christ. And we're not all made to do that missionary work, or we may not all be called to go international, I should say. But I would say that God has called us all to be missionaries where we stand. He has called us to be those who are ministers of the gospel, those servants who bless the nations, just as Israel was supposed to be those servants in the nations, and not to join in with the idolatry, but to be a light of this servant, this righteous servant. Finally, not only is he a righteous servant, not only he laid down his life, but he is a triumphant savior. The contradictions galore in here. That he would die, yet live. That his suffering and sacrifice, he is unimpressive, yet he's triumphant. Isaiah verse 12, 53 verse 12. Therefore I will give him many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death, and he was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Now we're going to end where we started. The king of glory was in heaven, and we rebel. And instead of crushing his enemy, the king steps down off the throne to lay down his life for them. And what what Isaiah tells us here is that God gives him the many as a portion. This This is triumph. This is success. This is conquest language. A king who came and succeeded would take the spoils home. And he gave him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil that when when christ comes to earth he's not consumed with the idea of the riches that this world has to offer he lays down the greatest glory and riches of heaven in order to come into the flesh as a baby humbly laid in a food trough and in his humility christ is exalted Because he submitted to death willingly and counted among the rebels in order to intercede for them. You know, Jesus challenges us to how we think about this world when he comes and he talks in Matthew chapter 6. And he tells the people who were listening to him at the time, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where three thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust 
destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the king of glory gladly laid down his life for rebels. And what Jesus is challenging here is that we all too often are still consumed with the riches and the success and, as he says, laying up treasure on earth. But the truth is, where the king of glory succeeded and was glorified, he took those spoils home, which is life. He brought home the rebels. He saved and brought back into the family those who were wandering sheep. And for you and I who are believers in Christ, our portion, our riches are with him. They're not in this world. And we don't have to be tied up in this world. We don't have to be consumed by what the world says is success. Because we know those things fade away. All those things are temporary. The fantastic job is awesome. It serves our needs. You get to intercede and be with people who you might not normally interact with. Some of you guys have amazing jobs. I'll never be in that space, but God has you there. You have the opportunity to live in neighborhoods and be in spaces that some of us will never be in or may live near, nearby, but we're in neighbors, as Paul talks about, where God controls our steps and directs our path so that in some way, he's not far from any of us, we might walk and come to him. And so where you are in this world is not to be denied and not to be rejected. I'm not speaking of asceticism to set aside all of these things as evil to not be touched, but to recognize that as your triumphant Savior and King, He has placed you in a place in this world that you don't store up treasures and riches on this earth, but rather you focus on what is eternal. What serves the kingdom of God. What pleases Him. That you seek fruit like this suffering servant did. That you, that you see what is really true eternal life in knowing God fully and holy. And that you, and that you store up treasures in heaven. And what's really marked about this is that this very passage is the exact same that passage that Jesus introduced himself with through his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 20, Jesus had the opportunity to come before the synagogue and actually says he went to uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And it's a common thing where someone is handed a scroll of particular prophets to give a reading and often might would give a little bit of a backstory. Think about a little devotional, if you will. He stands up, reads from it, maybe says a couple words and sits down. And in this particular case, Jesus goes into Nazareth and as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written this way. And this is reading from verse six, chapter 61 of Isaiah. Because after Isaiah introduces the servant, he goes on in Isaiah 61 to talk about what this servant also will accomplish. And this is what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim Release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he stands up and reads from the Isaiah in 62. He reads a passage probably they were familiar with. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. So he's preaching good news to the poor. This is a, a message of the Messiah. This is, a, this is a phrase recognized as someone, that servant that Isaiah talks about, identifying himself, that the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And I'm, I'm proclaiming release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. Everyone's looking at Jesus for a few words. And he chooses to say this. He began by saying, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. That's a devotional. That's that's a word. That's a whole word. Because Jesus is telling them that servant's here. The Messiah is here. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. And as the king of heaven, I have set aside the glories and the riches and the goodness of the presence of God in heaven to serve and give my life to save rebels. He's a suffering servant, an unbelievable idea to this world, foolishness to the wise. But he's an unexpected sovereign, a blameless substitute, a joyful sacrifice, a righteous servant, but he's a triumphant savior. He's all those things. And if we don't know that king, I would love to introduce him to you because that king goes against all the things this world tells you is success and he gives you all the more power and glory in walking in life with him it's not in this world guys it's not in this flesh it's not in what we see in our spaces in front of us it's not what the world says is success it's none of those things do not be consumed by that do not be hung up on that christ in the flesh God shows us in his life in accomplishing the will of, the, of, of God the Father. He also demonstrates for us what is a priority. And I pray that you would follow after him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this king. We're grateful for Jesus. That he was willing to lay down his life on our behalf. That this king of glory, this suffering servant, sacrificed for us. And that we can live in him. God, make us more like Jesus. And ask us in his name.